If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So there is a real strategic necessity as far as Hitler's concerned and the Nazis are concerned to hold on to Normandy as absolutely long as possible. That's really why they fight so close to the coast. That was James Holland discussing the battle for Normandy in 1944. But I really never quite expected to be this close to what may be, you know, the, the skull of, of medieval royalty. And that was Sarah Gristwood in the crypt of Tewkesbury Abbey. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents or take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. And we also have many digital editions, including for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. If you want details of those head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Next week, we'll see the 70th anniversary of the Allied landings in Normandy. D-Day opened up a new Western Front in the battle against Nazi Germany and helped set the course for a divided Europe after the Second World War. To get the lowdown on this momentous event, I caught up with military historian James Holland, who is presenting an upcoming documentary on the landings and has written an accompanying article for the latest issue of BBC History magazine. The premise of your article is that D-Day and the Normandy campaign have been rather unfairly done down. Why have you come to this view? 
Well, I suppose um, really it's, it's, it's to do with that kind of missing third level of war. I mean, I think the historiography of, of the Second World War and particularly D-Day and Normandy has really concentrated on the strategic level, the kind of overall aims of, of what it's about, what the Germans are trying to do, what the Allies are trying to do, and the tactical level, the man in the foxhole, the pilot flying his P-47 Thunderbolt, um, you know, the actual engagements happening on the ground. What has been given fairly sort of scant regard is the operational level, which is the nuts and bolts and and how it all works together and, and ha- that kind of the logistics, the supply, the kind of how you how you make how you gel the strategic and the tactical levels together. And, and it's that level that has been kind of understudied or, or hasn't been looked at in conjunction with the other two, I suppose. And when you do start looking at that, you, you start realising that there is a whole level of complexity to this which has just been left out of the story, which then throws open all sorts of different perspectives, I suppose. What are people saying, what are historians saying that, that's giving this kind of negative pull over D-Day? What are their criticism of it? Well, for, I mean, when you say D-Day, I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about the whole Normandy campaign rather than D-Day itself. Um, I think particularly the the Allied under the underwhelming effort of the Allies, that, that somehow the Allies are bashing their heads against a brick wall of highly motivated, highly trained, tactically flexible German troops and not getting very far. And this is criticism that happened at the time. I mean, you know, th- there was an appreciation of, of how the battle was going to play out beforehand, which was broadly, gui- you know, there was nothing more than guidelines. But, you know, for example, on sort of D plus 17, a couple, you know, just after a couple of weeks after D-Day, it was expected in the pre-invasion appreciation that the Allies would be some 50 miles inland, uh, which is why they hadn't really particularly bothered with training to fight through Bocage country, for example. Um, part of the D-Day, um, the pre-invasion plans have been to capture the high ground south and southeast of Caen, um, which high ground is obviously advantageous, but also from there we could start building airfields. So there is this expectation that, that the Allies are going to be further in than they are, and the Germans don't do what they've done previously in the war. They don't wait for the enemy to come forward engage them, then retreat it, then retreat, leaving a skeleton force behind, making the Allies fully deploy. What that does is lead to a very slow, attritional retreat back. But because of the strategic importance of Normandy, Hitler insists that there can be no trading of space for time, as there is in the Eastern Front, or indeed as there has been to a certain extent in in Italy and North Africa, and they have to fight really close to the close to the um, to the coast. And actually, this this has just been ignored. You know, the, the, this this factor that that it doesn't really matter where the Germans are being defeated as long as they're being defeated. And actually, it works. It plays to the Allies' advantage that the Germans do insist on fighting close to the beach because obviously that means Allied lines of supply are are shorter. It means that. The Germans are within range of offshore naval guns, um, which is very much to their disadvantage, um, and, and while their own lines of supply are, are further. But the reason for this, of course, is that once Normandy goes, then Brittany is going to follow the V1 rocket launch, uh, launch sites, which in which Hitler holds great stall, are just in the northern France, not far from Normandy, in the Pas de Calais. Um, you know, he's still hoping that that is going to be decisive, even though clearly it's not. 
the Battle of the Atlantic has been defeated in May 1943, but there's new Mark 20 U-boats coming in and, and Hitler still hopes that they might be able to achieve something. Um, they're not going to be if those Atlantic ports have, uh, are in Allied hands. So there is a real strategic a necessity as far as Hitler's concerned and the Nazis are concerned to hold on to Normandy as absolutely long as possible. That's really why they, they fight so close to the to the coast. But what that does mean that all those pre-invasion appreciations, this sort of estimation of what's going to happen, gets completely blown out the window. Um, and the Allies are forced to fight so close to the coast. But of course, if you're Eisenhower or you're Churchill or you're, uh, or you're Roosevelt, what you're seeing is you're looking at lines on a map and you're seeing allies just sort of not going any distance at all. Uh, and that starts to cause you worry because in exactly the same way that Hitler wants to keep the V1 rocket sites functioning, the allies want to get them out of the way as quickly as possible. Um, they're also very mindful of the huge advances of the Red Army on the Eastern Front. And so there is this political imperative to get on with it. And that starts to kind of mar the whole image of what is happening in Normandy, which is further compounded by the fact that Monty is just so very bad at explaining to his superiors exactly what is going on. If Montgomery had said to Eisenhower, look, I know this isn't going quite according to plan, but don't worry about it. You know, it's not us that's banging a brick, uh, our heads against a brick wall of panzer divisions. It's the panzer divisions that are banging their heads against a brick wall of, of, of the Allies. You know, that's, that's far more important. What's happening is, is we are grinding them into dust. Hold your nerve, it will be fine, because if we can defeat them entirely here, then once the floodgates are open, then we'll be away. And of course, that's exactly what happens. So your contention is we have to judge the whole Normandy campaign, compare that to what was what the objectives were and see if they succeeded in that case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very interesting that, you, you know, that there's, a, there's a rather wonderful diary by a chap called Chester B. Hansen, who was the senior aide to General Bradley, who was the American Ground Forces commander. And Hansen keeps a very, kept a very detailed diary. And there's this one entry he makes where he's visited by a senior reporter from the New York Times. And the New York Times guy goes, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, you're not getting anywhere. You've got to take more risks. You've got to just go for it. And Chester Hansen makes the point that this journalist is, you know, he's being an armchair historian. He's looking at it from, from the maps. He's looking at it from what he's hearing in the corridors of power. He's not looking at it from the perspective of those on the ground. They're not, they're not realizing the complexity of the situation. And they're not realizing that actually it works to the Allies' advantage to defeat the enemy really close to the coastline rather than having a long, drawn-out campaign across the whole of France. Am I right to say that there's another criticism that there was too much loss of Allied lives in D-Day and, and the early Normandy campaign. Would that be a fair criticism? I don't think it is. I mean, what the Allies work out in the Second World War and, and what Britain works out you know, before war um, opens is that what they want to do is they're going to fight a highly technological, mechanically based war that is going to keep the number of guys that are actually fighting at the coalface to a bare minimum. And this they do spectacularly well. But you can only protect those people so much. And the bottom line is that technology hasn't advanced sufficiently that you can avoid high casualties at the front. So the numbers of men at the front line are comparatively few. I mean, in terms of the British Army, the British Army never grows more than 55 divisions in the entire Second World War. You know, Germany goes into the invasion of the West in 1940 with 135 divisions, 
for example. Um, so, you know, it's always been our intention to be very manpower light at the coalface. The problem is, is if you are at the coalface, your chances of getting through it unscathed are almost, you know, they're very, very bad. They're kind of, they're worse than they are in the, in the First World War, for example. So overall, proportionally. And there's just no way of avoiding that. And, and what the Allies have worked out by the beginning of 1944 is that the way to defeat the Germans in the field is not to try and ape them, not to try and do what the Germans do, but to do what they do and use their own resources to the best possible way they can. And the way to do that is to build up a huge arsenal of firepower, which they can have, which they have the the, the money and uh, factories and machinery to be able to achieve and use that to absolutely hammer their enemy. What they also realise is that the Germans have a sort of deep-rooted part of their DNA is to constantly counterattack. It all goes back to, you know, Klaus Fitzian theories of war and all the rest of it. So what the German theory behind that is that what you do is you let your enemy come on and when they've overextended, they're at their weakest, they're at the most disconnected, then you counterattack with a big, big, big punch. The problem with that is that it's quite easy to save lives while you're dug in in a defensive position. I mean, if you're in a foxhole, the only way someone's going to kill you is if if a shell absolutely lands on your head. Um, so casualties can be quite light, and you can maintain that defensive position comparatively easily and and without too many losses. The point is that if the moment you do a counterattack, you have to get out of those foxholes, get out of those defensive positions and expose yourself. And the moment they do that, the allied, the full allied arsenal, in the case of Normandy, of, of artillery, air power and naval power, absolutely mashes them. Um, and they get completely um, they get completely blown to pieces. And it happens every single time. Um, and what the Allies are doing is, is is probing forward in an effort. You know, the, the, the infantry and the armour are the carrot that is to, is to lure the, the Germans out of those defensive positions. And it works spectacularly well. It's just very unfortunate if you happen to be one of those infantry or one of those tank guys that has to do the probing forward and has to be the carrot. Do you think that films and programmes such as um, Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan, however sort of good they are, have skewed our, our understanding of D-Day and Normandy? Well, yes, definitely, because I think um, most people still think that, that D-Day was a predominantly American show. And, you know, it's just not true. I mean, all three service chiefs were, were British. Um, Two-thirds of the air forces used were British. Two-thirds of the men landed were British, if you include uh, the Canadians, who were part of, a, you know, one of the British dominions. Three-quarters of the warships are British. Three-quarters of the landing craft are British. So the idea that it's a, a predominantly American show just isn't the case. So, yes, they have skewed it, but, I mean, you know, I'm a great fan of, of both films and particularly Band of Brothers, I think, is superb miniseries and much of what they've done to depict what it was like being an American paratrooper fighting through D-Day, Normandy and through to the end of the war is uh, is about as true a depiction as you're ever going to get. Of course, there's little things that are mistakes and the purists can pick up on that, but, you know, it's a fantastic series and, you know, particularly the the um, portrayal of the taking out of the four guns at Breakall Manor, for example, on D-Day is, is just you know, it's brilliantly done. But of course, you're only seeing it from the American perspective. And I think that is one of the failings of the American retelling of the war, that they do tend to look at things through the narrow prism of their own experience. And I sort of feel that 70 years on, you know, that's not terribly helpful. I think it's much more important to look at things in the round and the 360 degree perspective. For the Allies, D-Day is clearly one of the defining moments of the war, but 
how important do you think it was to the overall outcome of the conflict? At that point, weren't Germany essentially defeated anyway? Yeah, they. I think Germany was finished. Uh, and it's very interesting to look at the point where Germany really should have thrown in the town. I think you can argue that it's the kind of the winter of 1942. Maybe it's Stalingrad, maybe it's uh, Tunisia in May 1943, maybe it's as late as Kursk. But, but you know, there's a good case for saying it's it's early, it's the winter of 1942, just because they've got to a point where, you know, they're no longer going to win. And it's very interesting, when you look at Germany in the First World War, I mean, why do they sue for an armistice? They sue for an armistice because they can't afford it anymore and they're clearly not going to win. So on that basis... Um, the winter of 1942 certainly seems a valid argument, I think. The difference is, is that Hitler's, <laughs> you know, he's not normal. You know, for Hitler, it's all or nothing. He doesn't talk of grey errors. He doesn't talk of sort of half victories or half losses. It's, it's there will be a thousand-year Reich or there will be Armageddon. There's nothing in between. So such is his will that they are going to fight on until the bitter end. But you know, what D-Day does, the successful invasion of France, what it does is it, it, it seals the German fate an awful lot quicker. Uh, and there is absolutely you no know, doubt that strategically Normandy and France are of much more strategic importance to Hitler and, the, and, and Germany than the Eastern Front is. I mean, I think we've been very overly seduced in recent years by the huge casualty figures in in the Eastern Front. And, you know, while no one should be belittling what happened on the Eastern Front, I think one does have to be careful to not equate casualty figures with strategic importance. Do you think that one of the, the most important things about D-Day is, is what that meant for the post-war world, that the Western Allies had a stake in Europe afterwards? Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I, mean, I was talking to, to Michael Wood, you know, one of your columnists and a great historian, just the other day, and he, he, he met Monty and had a long conversation with him um, some years ago. Uh, in, in 1966, actually, in the 900th um, anniversary of, of, the, of uh, the Normandy invasion of Britain. And he was, when he spoke to Montgomery, all he was talking about was his post-war disappointments and, you know, his sadness that uh, Europe had been split up and the Iron Curtain had been developed and all the rest of it. And, you know, and, and he still profoundly felt that had they followed his strategy, that none of that would have happened and that Germany would have remained in the West and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, you can argue the toss about all that. But certainly it would have been a hell of a lot worse if we hadn't invaded you yourself in your work have met, I know, lots and lots of veterans of D-Day. What kind of impression do you get of how they view the events now from this distance of 70 years? Well, it's very interesting. You have to be careful because a lot of people, um, they tend to kind of put what they've read subsequently uh, about the overall state of the campaign and what happened. They, they sort of absorb that into their own personal testimony. So you have to look at it. You have to sort of talk to them with a certain amount of caution. I mean, I think what really amazes me is... And this leads on to the sort of more of the general thesis is, is that when you talk to American and British troops, you realize that they they have a better, particularly, you know, I suppose, both tank commanders and officers and so on and senior NCOs rather than sort of privates who are just sort of trying to keep their head down. There is a greater level of understanding, appreciation of, of, of the fighting art and what needs to be done and a sort of sassiness and, and, a, and a kind of sort of level of experience that doesn't sit with the kind of traditional view of, of British 
troops constantly kind of being stodgy and endlessly brewing up tea and not really bothering. And ditto Americans, this idea that they're kind of sort of, you know, they don't bother shaving and they, they call officers by their first name and they're all a bit slack. That doesn't ring true to me with what I hear them saying. Similarly, when you talk to German veterans, you don't get any sense at all that they understand concepts like mission command or Austrag tactic or that they're particularly well trained. I mean, I was talking to a, a German Fallschirmjäger, a German paratrooper the other day from the 3rd Fallschirmjäger Division. And, you know, his paratroop training was, was three weeks long. That was was basically his training. Then he was sent to Brittany, where he continued training in position. And what they trained to do was route marches, laying mines, digging foxholes, a bit of firing. I mean, they never once trained with tanks, for example. And you sort of think, well, they're the elite ground forces in in the Wehrmacht. And yet, this idea of them being sort of tactical geniuses and hugely flexible and operationally flexible, I, it just doesn't really ring true. And I mean, you've been over to Normandy, I know, quite a few times. How do people who live there now, how do they view these events? Well, it's interesting. You you might expect them to be quite bitter about it. I mean, you know, Con was almost completely obliterated. Casualties of as many as 30,000 French civilians. Lots of villages completely blown from the face of the earth. Falaise, the ancient capital of the Conqueror, pretty much blown to dust, and low, completely blown to dust. You might expect them to be quite bitter about it, but you never get a sense of that at all. I mean, I suppose it's because it's such an industry over there. I mean, they have their farming, um, and that's uh, and they have the Normandy industry, the tourist in- industry, and I get the impression they're all very proud of it, really. Do you think the French story sometimes gets missed out of narratives of D-Day and the Normandy campaign because they weren't actually doing much of the active fighting? Yeah, well, they certainly weren't until Patton landed in Brittany. Yes, I suppose it does to a certain extent. There's been a sort of trend in recent years to sort of play down SOE and, and the resistance movement and everything. But, you know, resistance, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you, you get sort of new perspectives from, from what's happened in places like Afghanistan, where you can see that a bunch of ill-trained, poorly equipped fighters can hold up the most modern, sophisticated armed forces the world has ever known without too much difficulty. So... I think the problems the resistance caused to German forces in France and and the kind of headache they provide, the fact that German troops can never entirely relax because at any time they might be, you know, someone might be taking a pot shot at them or a bridge might be blown up or a railway blown up or whatever. Um, I think that has a kind of more debilitating factor than people probably have given them credit in recent years. And also the intelligence they were gathering was was very important for us in the in the build up and in terms of part of creating a picture of what was going on in Normandy, but also to help with the deception plan. So I think all that's important. I, I also think it's very unfortunate that de Gaulle is so routinely ridiculed by by historians, because actually, I don't think the Allies played it terribly well. I mean, you know, clearly de Gaulle was arrogant. Clearly, he was a pain in the neck and, and insufferable in many ways. But the big problem was that the Americans refused to accept him as de facto leader of uh, of free France. And even though the British had accepted him as head of the Committee of National Liberation in, in the summer of 1943, um, and even though de Gaulle was by 1944 clearly the figurehead of uh, a unifying factor behind um, French resistance, the Americans still refused to accept him as de facto leader because um, they said that, you know, he could only be leader when proper democratic elections had been carried out. Uh, And actually, that wasn't very helpful because 
I think you could have said to do it, you know, we could have said to de Gaulle, look, you've got to have elections, but you're de facto leader, but you are only de facto leader. You're not, you know, authorized leader until those elections happen. But in the meantime, you know, we're happy to give you give you our support, which indeed they do at the end of August. It could have been a hell of a lot messier than it actually was, because had they retreated across France, the Germans retreated across France in the way that their allies were expecting, the battle could have been a lot more uh, drawn out uh, and a lot more bloody uh, and a lot longer. And as Allied forces pushed forward and were concentrating on defeating Germany, they would have taken their eye off the ball on civil affairs as they had in in Italy. And into that power vacuum, just as happened in Baghdad in 2003, would have come all sorts of heinous elements. French politics before the war was incredibly fractious uh, and certainly hadn't improved by 1944. So you could have had civil war very easily breaking out. I think it was more by luck than by judgment that that didn't happen and the fact is as we went the allies landed in normandy without french liaison officers without the support of de gaulle uh, um, without the full support of french forces and de gaulle and that could have very easily been solved had the americans been less dogmatic about their their insistence on immediate democracy there have been a great many books written about D-Day and Normandy. Are there any that you'd particularly recommend to someone who's listening who wants to find out more about this story? Yeah, well, from the British perspective, I'd definitely recommend the new book by John Buckley, Monty's Men. Um, it's less on the American side and it's less on the German side. I mean, it does what it, what it says on the tin, so to speak. It is, it is about the British effort in Normandy. Um, and, and it's very good and very fair and very balanced and brings all sorts of, um, draws on all sorts of, of material, which is, generally hasn't been brought together before. So that's very good. I mean, if you want a sort of a, a great yarn of what happens in on D-Day, then you can't go far wrong with Cornelius Ryan, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's just a great story. Bearing in mind that it was sort of written in the 60s when a lot of the documents and papers that are now available weren't available to him. Um, so for, for, for entertainment, I'd, I'd go for Cornelius Ryan for exciting new perspectives on the Normandy campaign, and particularly the British involvement, definitely John Buckley. You've got your documentary coming out, and when this goes out, it'll be in the next few days. Could you give us a, a brief idea of what people can expect from that? Well, yes, I'm just trying to sort of open people's eyes. I think there's so many kind of very entrenched myths about D-Day and the Normandy campaign, which have become so entrenched, they've become sort of widely accepted. And I think sometimes, and a a 70th anniversary is a very good opportunity to do this, you need to just sit back and look at this stuff afresh and go, hang on a minute, that doesn't all quite add up. And and is there a new way of looking at this? And it's not revisionist for revisionist's sake. It's, It's just having a fresh set of eyes over a very well-trod subject and discovering that there are, in fact, a number of new perspectives which I hope will surprise people. That was James Holland. Look out for his article on D-Day in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also this month, Derek Wilson explores a Tudor murder mystery, Admiral Lord West reveals the Royal Navy's impact on the 20th century, and we're kicking off a new series of oral histories of the First World War. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents and digitally for the Kindle, Kindle Fire, iPad, iPhone, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. James Holland's documentary, Normandy 44, will be broadcast on BBC Two on 9.30pm on Friday the 6th of June, which is of course the 70th anniversary of D-Day. James is also one of the organisers of the Chalk Valley History Festival, which takes place at the end of this month and features a fantastic lineup of speakers. 
For more details of that event, please visit cvhf.org.uk. And if history festivals are your thing, then don't forget that tickets are currently on sale for our 2014 History Weekend. Taking place from the 16th to the 19th of October in Malmesbury, Wiltshire, the festival features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors and broadcasters. For more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the website historyweekend.com. And I should tell you that a couple of talks have already sold out, so please do get hold of your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. Archaeologists unearthing the remains of a Roman fort on the west coast of Cumbria have discovered what could possibly be a lost Roman harbour. Oxford Archaeology North and a team of volunteers who are excavating a settlement at Maryport Roman Fort, have uncovered what is believed to be an earlier fort and lost Roman harbour to the north of the site. The team has also uncovered a variety of artefacts, including fragments of fine tableware imported from Gaul and the Rhineland, storage vessels that once contained Spanish olive oil, and several items of jewellery, including a jet finger ring and part of a decorated glass bangle. The project is helping researchers to better understand the daily experiences of those who lived at Maryport. Meanwhile, distant relatives of Richard III have lost their high court battle over where his remains should be reburied. The Plantagenet Alliance Limited, who are campaigning to see the former king reburied in York, challenged the Justice Secretary's decision not to consult further before granting a licence to the University of Leicester to excavate the remains. The licence also enables the university to decide where the remains are reinterred. But on the 23rd of May, the court announced that the Plantagenet Alliance's application had been unsuccessful. The judgment read, There are no public law grounds for the court interfering with the decisions in question. In the result, therefore, the claimant's application for judicial review is dismissed. 
You can read more about this story at historyextra.com. Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Tewkesbury Abbey in Gloucestershire has a long history that dates back to the 11th century. But it is for its role in the Wars of the Roses that the Abbey is often remembered, when a bloody battle for the Crown of England was fought in the fields that surround it. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met historian Sarah Gristwood at the Abbey to find out what led to the bloodshed of the 4th of May, 1471. Sarah, we're in the beautiful um, Tewkesbury Abbey, um, just near to the battleground where the, the famous Battle of Tewkesbury took place. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the background to the battle, um, what led up to it and you know, why it happened? The Battle of Tewkesbury was what effectively ended the so-called Lancastrian re-adeption. So after 10 years of Yorkist rule, Edward IV on the throne, Warwick, the so-called kingmaker, made an unlikely alliance with the Lancastrians, with Margaret of Anjou, her son, and her husband, the deposed Henry VI. Mm -hmm. So they put Henry VI back onto the throne, uh, and briefly, Edward and his Yorkist forces had to flee into exile abroad. That happened in the autumn of 1470. However, in the spring of 1471, the Yorkists were back. Edward was back with with new forces. Clarence, who was married to Warwick's daughter, Isabel, and who obviously had at first been, you know, allied with Warwick, Mm -hmm. came over back to his brother's side. So... By the time the Battle of Tewkesbury came around, there were all three York brothers here, Edward, Clarence, and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III. Mm -hmm. And they met here the forces of Margaret of Anjou, the Lancastrian Queen, who was here with her son, the Prince of Wales. And there had already been quite a serious battle at Barnet, um, Mm -hmm about a month prior to the Battle of Tewkesbury, mm-hmm. um, which has seen the Lancastrians um, quite thoroughly defeated. Mm-hmm. What, what made them carry on um, after that? Well, for one, that means <clears throat> they didn't have very much choice but to carry on. Mm. But yes, the Battle of Barnet was fought on exactly the day that Margaret of Anjou landed back in England, mm. having spent, you know, obviously a long time of exile in France. But so she was greeted by this news that Warwick, her great powerful ally, had been killed and the uh, the chronicles report that understandably she was very heavy, Mm. massively distressed. But nonetheless, she had an army with her and she was trying to get across the Severn River into Wales where Jasper Tudor was also assembling forces. So there was still a very real chance that they could have won. You know, Edward had a huge victory at the Battle of Barnet, yes, and Warwick was killed. Mm. But winning one battle doesn't win a war. When they met here, you know, it really, I think, it could have gone the other way. Yeah. I mean, Margaret of Anjou, she sounds quite a formidable lady. Um, Was she the driving force, I think, behind this? I mean, she was driving her son on, wasn't she? I think there's no question that Margaret Mm. of Anjou was the driving force of the Lancastrian royal family, you know, with her great allies among the nobles, men like the Duke of Somerset. 
her husband, Henry VI, after all, had had these long periods of insanity. Yeah. That's what really forced, that's what really started, you know, the conflict, the turmoils off and gave the Yorkists their opportunity. Yeah. Her son was still a teenager of whom, you know, we don't know that much. Yeah. No, it really was Margaret of Anjou who struck the all-important deal with Warwick. Yeah. Edward was actually executed mm. after the battle. Well, well, there are question marks over exactly what happened Mm. to Edward, the Lancastrian Prince of Wales, whether he died in the thick of the fighting or Mm. very honourably, or whether, more likely, he was killed afterwards. And, of course, as soon as the Yorkist forces got back into London... Margaret of Anjou's husband shared the fate of her son. Henry mm. VI also died that night. It was put out that he died of, quote, pure displeasure and melancholy. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, yes. I think everyone knows what happened to him. Yeah. But, of course, that really took Margaret of Anjou out of the game mm. because then, with no son and no husband she had no cause for which to fight. Mm. So the Battle of Tewkesbury, what happened here, really did end the Lancastrian cause for the next decade and more. Kind of makes you wonder what would have happened if... um Anne, because Anne was married, wasn't she? Anne Neville was married mm-hmm. to the Prince of Wales for yes, a little the short time. Yes. Mm. What would have happened if they'd had a, a, son? a child? Mm. Well, absolutely. If Anne Neville had had a son by the Lancastrian Prince of Wales, it would have given a, a cause. It would mm. have given the Lancastrian cause someone for whom to go on fighting. Yeah. But as it is in those months of 1471, once Henry VI and his son were both dead, there wasn't anybody. Mm. Henry Tudor would not not at that point have looked like an obvious Lancastrian candidate. Partly because, of course, his own Lancaster, you know, Lancastrian blood claim mm. was really pretty weak. Yeah. And also he was at this point himself still a teenager. Mm. So he went into exile abroad with his uncle Jasper. And it really did look as if the Lancastrian cause died mm. here. Yeah. It's only later events. It's only, you know, the fact that a dozen years later, Edward IV died early of illness, leaving again only a child to succeed him. And then Richard III's takeover that fractured the Yorkist cause and gave the Lancastrians a new opportunity. But no one knew that the spring summer of 1471. And of course it's thought that Edward, um, Prince of Wales, is actually buried quite near to where we're sitting now, um, just underneath the... um, The sun in splendour, yes. Um, Which, of course, is the symbol of, of the Yorkist dynasty, the, 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 the sons of York, yeah. yes. But, of course, the plaque and probably the painting are a Victorian. Mm. Um, yes, we know that Edward is buried here. And at some time ago, apparently, they did find some bones which could possibly mm. be those of, of the Lancastrian prince. Yeah. But, uh, a pen, you know, barring another Richard III yes. at Leicester moment, we don't really know. Um, and, of course, the Abbey's also known... Um, it, was, it was used as a sanctuary, wasn't mm. it, by some of the fleeing Lancastrians after mm. the battle? And it's, um, Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, think? this is one of the most controversial things. Mm. The Abbey, we believe that, you know, that Margaret of Anjou and those around her would have... 
sheltered here during the battle, maybe watched from the tower. Mm. But afterwards, as the Lancastrians, you know, were fleeing in defeat, many of them came into the abbey and tried to claim the right of sanctuary. And the stories vary. You know, one story says that that Edward and his men actually pursued them into, a ch- into the church with drawn swords, which was, you know, a very shocking mm. thing to do, and that the abbot at that moment was actually celebrating mass at the high altar and advanced towards them, you know, with the host, mm. and that, that Edward then withdrew, but there, there was, you know, that, that may or may not be a romantic yeah. story, but Edward then withdrew, there was a huge debate, and effectively it was, it was reluctantly conceded that no these men could not claim sanctuary here uh, and there was a huge slaughter so it's such a slaughter that it is said that the church had in the churchyard had to be reconsecrated though well, we've just been told that there aren't actually altogether mm. records of that how did um people react to that mm. that that event um well you see here you come up against one of the big mm issues about the history of the Wars of the Roses, which is, it was very much a propaganda war. See, after all, most people in the country wouldn't necessarily have known anything about what was happening here, and when they were informed, they'd probably have had the official Yorkist version. I mean, I'm quite sure it caused shock and horror among Mm. all those who knew about the slaughter. especially if there were, you know, acts of violence on consecrated ground. But there are, there are several different reports. There's one, the uh, the arrival, the arrival of describing um, Edward's, you know, resumption of the the throne, which has him behaving in the most chivalrous fashion possible. Mm. You know, so so I think one can't altogether assume that everyone in England then would have known no. exactly what had gone on. And that is kind of the image you, you have of him, isn't yeah. it? The sort of gold, the tall, handsome, golden, golden king. prince. Yes. Yeah and, yeah, and then to have this sort of event happening, yeah. doesn't, you know, and, that's right. And then also the death of of Henry, of Henry under such suspicious circumstances. Mm. Yes, that's right. But then, of course, later in the Tudor reign, mm. then you know the pole it has swung right, the pendulum yes. had swung right round again. So then we're hearing the Lancastrian. Version, yeah. and there'd have been every enthusiasm to tell, you know, how appallingly. Yeah. Do you think the it? Do you think it happened in the Abbey, or? My guess is, I'd have thought not in the Abbey. I'd have yeah. thought outside the actual doors. Yes. Yeah. And do we know how many? And we people? know. Well, we what we know, of course, is that the leaders were taken off, mm. and the next day there was a kind of nominal show trial in the marketplace, and they were ex they were executed right. there. Yeah and buried here and uh, buried in what's now the shop, I yes. believe. <laughs> and um, what happened to um, to Margaret uh, of Anjou and also to Anne Neville? Who mm. Were they around this area when mm. the battle was actually taking place? Well, Margaret was, was here, yes, certainly. Mm. And so we assume that most likely Anne was with her. But they fled. They were captured... A- Three days later, somewhere near Malvern, you know, mm-hmm. so sort of yeah. some miles away, having taken shelter in a, a poor religious house is how the description went. Mm. And then you see Margaret 
had been such a powerful player, but now she'd become an irrelevance. Yeah. She had no one left for whom to fight. Yeah. She was taken as Edward's captive and I displayed, you know, in triumph, much the way that, that, that you know, mm. in, in, in the Shakespeare play it was said uh, Caesar would display Cleopatra. Yeah. But then she was, you know, first in the Tower, then in fairly lenient captivity, then after some years ransomed to France and died right. in obscurity and poverty. For Anne, it was a very different business. Mm. Anne hadn't been a player before then. As far as we know, you know, she'd, she would just have been married off on her father's orders yeah. to Margaret of Anjou's son, whatever her feelings about it. Now, on someone else's orders, on Edward's orders, she was handed into the care or custody of the Duke of Clarence, who was, of course, her brother-in-law, yeah. being married, you know, to Warwick's, to Warwick's daughter, other daughter, Isabel. And... You see, the thing is, with Anne, there went the chance of inheriting a huge amount of money. Mm. <laughs> and that probably is why Clarence wanted to keep, keep his ha you know, her under his hands yeah. and why also Clarence's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, wanted to marry her. Mm. And there were lots of stories that Richard was after Anne, that Clarence actually kept her hidden, you know, hidden away, mm. and that Richard had to smuggle her out. You know, there are stories of her being disguised as a kitchen yes, maid yes. before Richard married mm. her. And, I mean, some people like to think that this, is, this was a wonderful romantic story, yeah. that Anne and Richard, who would have known each other in childhood, were secretly in love. Well, anything's possible. But I'm afraid there's another story that says that Clarence said to Richard, to Gloucester, yes, fine, you can marry her as long as you don't have the money. Mm. And he wasn't interested. So, yes. he, wanted, he wanted the lands with the lady. It sounds a little bit more likely, it does, doesn't, doesn't it? it? <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, and do we know much about the battle itself? I mean, we've, mm. earlier we had a look at this behind the sacristy mm -hmm. door. Um, yes. Which is, it supposedly has... Um, Pieces armor, of, yes, of horse armour, probably, yes, um, taken by the monks to, to re reinforce yeah. the door. Yes, we do. Um, there's a big sort of battlefield tra trail that runs around the town mm. and the uh, horribly evocatively named Bloody Meadow. So, yes, we do pretty much know where the different forces came from. But there are some sort of there are some key things about this battle that uh, resonate even for someone like me who's no military historian. Mm. It was early May, but it was unseasonably hot weather. The okay. day before um, Margaret's army and the Yorkists behind them, they'd had this huge forced march, you know, because mm. Margaret's army were trying to get across the Severn before Edward caught up with them. Yeah. There was no food, there was no water, not even water for the horses. So that, you know, the armies, particularly Margaret's, were exhausted. Yeah. Yes, Edward, apparently Edward, you know, was a, a, as, he, as he always was, a clever campaign manager. He hid a, you know, party of horsemen in a wood. Um, so I'm sure the fighting would have been the usual appallingly bloody and brutal mm. tale of medieval warfare, but with a few added elements. One, you know, the heat, the exhaustion, and also the treachery factor. One of the main Lancastrian commanders apparently went over to the other side, or there are stories, okay. went over okay. to the other side. Uh, and was, you know, pursued by his commanding officer mm. who beat his brains out with an axe, you know, mm. crying, treachery, treachery. Uh, so 
it did have a peculiarly vicious edge. Yeah. That seems to be a theme that kind of goes through this period, mm-hmm. you know, of changing yeah. size. Yes, it does. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm sure I started, as most of us did, as a child when I heard of the Wars of the Roses. You hear red on mm. one side, white on the other, all very neat. Yeah. Nothing like it. No. It's all about, you know, these queasy coalitions, shifting allegiances, yeah. politics. So we've crept down into um, a rather small little crypt in Tewkesbury Abbey, haven't we? And in front of us is a a glass fish tank containing what may or may not be the bones of George, Duke of Clarence, and his wife, Isabel Neville. And I can't believe I'm actually looking at literally a glass fish tank with a plastic container, the kind you put leftover rice in, in the kitchen, in this small claustrophobic space which is usually shut off from visitors, Mm. but it's extraordinary. We've just heard this story how an 18th century mayor of the town thought that he and his wife outranked Clarence and Isabel, and that therefore he may possibly have had the bones chucked out or chucked into a corner and replaced them with his own. I can feel a Richard III at Leicester moment coming on. (laughs) Definitely, yes. It's a very, um, it's very small in here, isn't it? Very. Touch the ceiling. Yeah, you can touch the ceiling, and you could almost touch both sides. Mm. You would never know it was here, would you? Really, it's just covered by a a grate at the top. Grate and a a sign. Mm. But I mean, it is. It's very, very strange. We are literally looking at skulls and various other uh, bits of pelvis. I think. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes, your anatomy is obviously better than mine. <laughs> the skull is as far as I go. Yeah, but I really never quite expected to be this close to what may be, you know, the, mm. the skull of, of medieval royalty. So um, what was Clarence doing at the time of the battle? Was he here fighting? Clarence was here fighting. All three of the sons of York were here fighting together, mm. which is a story in itself, because Clarence had started these months and this campaign as his brother Edward's enemy. Mm-hmm. Clarence had made an unlikely alliance with, with Warwick and with Margaret of Anjou, yeah. had married Warwick's daughter, so Warwick was promoting him as an alternative for the throne. Mm-hmm. But, amazingly, Clarence went, then went back over to his brother Edward's side, and, of course, that played a huge part in winning mm-hmm. Edward the campaign. <laughs> That was Sarah Gristwood at Tewkesbury Abbey. You can read her feature on the battle in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. And if you'd like to see images related to this podcast, including the fish tank of bones, please visit historyextra.com forward slash Tewkesbury hyphen Abbey. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. The debate about our theme tune continues to run, and one listener who's got in touch about that is Daryl Templer from California. Daryl writes, Every week I look forward to your theme in the same way that I looked forward to the theme announcing the BBC World Service on times past. In both cases, the content is richly varied. Please continue doing what you do so well. Thanks for that, Daryl, and do please keep your messages coming in. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on social media, follow us on Twitter at History Extra, or find us on Facebook, where we are also History Extra. 
And do make sure to check out our website, historyextra.com, for the latest news, quizzes, galleries, articles, and previous episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007. Next week, we'll be broadcasting a special interview with the winners of this year's Wolfson History Prize. And that episode will be coming out next Tuesday rather than next Thursday, so do make sure you listen in early for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Tewkesbury and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.